Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Tales to Terrify was in the running for the People's Choice Podcast Awards. A huge thank you to everyone who voted, because we've officially made the final ballot. If you voted in the first round, you may receive a request to cast a second ballot. And if you do, we'd be so grateful if you'd once again take a moment to toss one in the barrel for us. We've got some stiff competition again this year, and we'd love to take home the hardware. With the final ballot out, that also makes PodcastAwards.com a great place to discover some other shows worth listening to. The finalist list has a great selection of other podcasts in pretty much all categories and genres that are well worth your time. So, if you need some extra audio for your ears in between episodes, hit it up and see what gems you can uncover. Again, that's podcastawards.com. Speaking of uncovering gems, we've had a great start to our submissions period. Seems like we aren't the only ones that enjoy a good, harrowing haunted house tale. So, keep the evil flowing, children of the night. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions Lastly this week, a couple of thank yous. First to our newest patron, Claire Van Volda. Your support of the podcast really shows what kind of twisted human you are, Claire, and we love you for it. Thank you also goes out to reviewer Elfman Danny for your incredibly kind words on Podchaser. We never take for granted that coveted spot in your subscribed podcast list, and reviews are one of the best ways to let us know we're doing something horribly right. Now, let's see what fresh horrors we have to unleash on you this week. Our first story this evening comes from Jolie Tumajan. 
Jolie Tumajan is a Ph.D. candidate, writer, editor, and all-around ghoul. Her dissertation in progress is focused on the women who wrote for Weird Tales, and her work has appeared in Upon a Thrice Time, Black Static, and Death in the Mouth. Despite all of this, her plan for the zombie apocalypse is to pour a bottle of hot sauce over her head. Children of the Night, join me for Jolie Tumajan's favorite favorite, a Tales to Terrify original. Alara often wished she had been born earlier, so the kids in her class would taunt her, call her Jesus Freak, and ostracize her. These days, her father's position as the parish priest at the village Orthodox Church offered her no interest, either positive or negative, but Alara knew there could be something more. In Alara's favorite, favorite books, Something called suitors courted carefully selected preacher's daughters who they treated as precious jewels. Alara wanted a suitor very much, even though her mother said that suitor was just another name for a potential boyfriend, which Alara decidedly didn't want. Still, she refused to stop picturing an empty suit stuffed like a scarecrow, bouncing up the drive, one sleeve knotted around a bouquet of blue roses. Her less favorite books offered other options. In these, the children of clergy were goody-two-shoes who had no friends, or they were devils who drove their parents mad with disobedience, or sometimes they looked like goody-two-shoes but were secretly devils. Any way you sliced it, though, they got to be interesting, and Alara didn't. Alara got B's in school and generally did as she was told. She hunched over her tests to stop her friends from copying her answers and always came home with her bow still in her hair. When her father told her to brush her teeth, she never splashed water on the brush and went to bed instead. Still, Alara could never commit herself entirely to goodness. She never tattled, even when the whole class would be punished. And her favorite trick was to fake pester Mrs. Gabrellian with questions, questions, questions giving Paris the opportunity to steal the bag of glittery reward pencils from the desk drawer. She was neither popular nor unpopular, invited to all the birthday parties, but nobody's best friend. And she had no particular reputation among the parents of the village other than for being polite, if plain spoken. Alara was just medium, regular, passed over, always second, and the best thing to happen to her was her three-year-old brother Edgar getting torn apart by a bear. Of course, no one in the village was entirely sure about the bear, but it seemed right. Plenty of things lived in the thick woods surrounding the village on all sides, and the adults often cautioned the children of mountain lions and wolves. Her parents refused to tell her what happened to Edgar, only that he had been in the woods and had gone away to heaven. They didn't even bother with a closed casket funeral, just a cremation and wake. The adults excused Alara's father from gossip about his inability to hold a decent funeral for his own son when they saw the depth of his grief. Alara pinched the skin of her wrist between her two bony fingers as she watched her father swaying, sobbing, hiccuping out shameless tears and snot. At the end of the wake, when the adults prepared to go back to their neat, unchewed lives, Alara's friends, Melody and Laura, pulled her outside and told her with all seriousness that little Edgar had gotten eaten up by a bear, there wasn't enough left of him to fill a thimble, and the mortician packed the urn with dust from the vacuum cleaner just to give Alara's mother something to bury. Then they said sorry and tripped back inside. 
What you thinking about, weirdo? Laura stuck her finger in Alara's ear. The intrusion startled Alara into honesty. My little brother, she said. At a sleepover? Weirdo. I mean, Alara smoothed the edge of her sleeping bag. She didn't want to be here, the same way she didn't want to go back to school yet. But she had to do that next week anyway. Edgar had only been dead for two weeks, but her parents kept sending her out of the house and saying she needed some normalcy, when they really needed an empty house so they could scream at each other. All the neighbors heard, and when she rode bikes with the kids from school for more normalcy, they filled Alara in on the details. Even that was nothing salacious. Just her mother screaming, My baby! My baby! After a few hours, her father would start yelling, Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! And then they did a little regular yelling. Every time it happened since Edgar died, Alara's friend Paris would announce to the group that her parents yelled with her still in the house, give an exaggerated shrug, and invite Alara to pedal away. Since we're talking about your brother, Laura's eyes shot to the corners of the room as she talked. Northwest, northeast, southeast, southwest, and Alara thought she looked like a wildly spinning clock. Did your parents ever tell you how Edgar really died? I think you ought to know. Alara twisted three impossibly narrow threads of hair into a knotted braid and pulled it in front of her face for a cross-eyed inspection until she was satisfied that it would have to be cut out. They said he was in the woods and he got very hurt, and that's why we aren't supposed to be in the woods. Laura exhaled all of her air. <sighs> Jefferson said that Paris said that she overheard her mother on the phone saying it wasn't a bear, because the only thing left of Edgar was his skin, all empty like a balloon. Or, Laura looked up the stairs and then leaned over and whispered, a condom. She erupted into shrieking giggles hugging her own ribs, and it took considerable time for her to calm down enough to continue. A single tear of laughter stuck between the top and bottom lashes of Laura's right eye, and she rubbed it away with her hand, huffing. Each time she started talking again, she would buzz laughter from her mouth, flapping her arms. Finally, she took a deep breath and said, Paris thinks that Blood Mother did it, and that's why none of the parents will talk about it. I wanted to tell you because I think you should be careful, she finished smugly. Everyone at school knew about Blood Mother, the lank ghoul summoned in a bathroom mirror. If she appeared, Blood Mother, sick from loneliness, would drag her chosen victim back to her nest in the woods, cooing, I love you, 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 in a rotted, curling voice. Then she would wrench open their mouths and feed them bile from a rotted nipple liquefying the unlucky beloved who spilled all over themselves, pouring from their own eyes, leaking from their own ears, leaving Blood Mother alone, alone, alone again. But Alara's older cousin said that Blood Mother was a knockoff of Bloody Mary, a game played by girls at slumber parties, and nobody actually believed in her. And it was true that whether the bathroom needed to be dark or candlelit or whether you looked into the mirror or faced away or whether you repeated the name five times or three times or seven times or shudder, 13 times, changed depending on the teller. He just died, Alara finally answered. He got out of the house and an animal caught him and it was horrible. She tugged on the braid, feeling strands snap and release from her scalp. There's no such thing as blood mother. It's a stupid story. There is such a thing, weirdo, Laura answered. Melody said that she and her sister called it once, but it just looked at them. Her sister tapped the mirror, you know, like you tap the aquarium to make the fish move, and then it disappeared. Like a week later, the nail she used turned black and fell off. Melody wouldn't lie to me. We're practically, like, related. There's no such thing, Alara said forcefully. Yeah? Come on, then. Laura grabbed Alara's arm and dragged her down the hallway, past rows of Ray Dunn bowls set on half-moon tables, each filled with rocks that said wish and love and peace and relax. Laura shoved Alara into the guest bathroom barely big enough for both of them, 
every inch of the walls covered in watercolor paintings of seashells. Alara noticed too late that the room had no windows, and when Laura flicked the light, it plunged them into a harsh darkness. After images of the vanity lights danced across her eyes and a tickle ran down Alara's arm. A stray hair? A spider? When Alara gasped, Laura pinched the skin behind Alara's elbow and twisted her fingers, like turning a key in a lock. It's only a game, right? Call her, Laura insisted. I'm not doing this. You said it wasn't even real, so what's the problem, weirdo? We don't even have a candle. You're stalling. Say it, Laura dropped her voice to a hiss. Pussy, I bet Edgar dropped dead of boredom from being related to you. Alara never wanted to think about the exact way her brother had been torn to bits, but the images always came late at night and Laura forced them to happen here and now. A lolling blob with unrecognizable features, vertebrae jutting like handles. A strip of skin ripped from his ribcage, still hanging from the shoulder joint. Stumps where hands used to be. Flat discs of white bone, surprisingly clean. A neatly torn cylinder of denim with a swollen foot hanging from one end. A body torn in half. Sharp teeth rooting through entrails. One last moment of consciousness. Laura would tell everyone that Blood Mother killed Edgar and use Alara's refusal to summon her as proof. It would be nothing but dead Edgar's face all day long, and Alara could not have that. How many should I do? Alara asked. Try three, Laura answered. Turn the light on for a second. I don't feel like tripping over the toilet and braining myself in your bathtub. Laura snapped on the light. Alara glanced at her, taking in the way she sucked her always wet upper lip past her lower teeth, followed by her lower lip past her upper teeth. The superior smile. Laura the stoic and unafraid, her meanest friend. Alara smiled at her in the mirror, and Laura stuck out her tongue and flipped the switch again. Blood mother, Alara whispered. She leaned forward and curled her fingers over the cool edge of the wash basin. She could have sworn she saw a wiggle in the dark. Blood mother. A slight click, a footstep on a loose tile. Alara whipped her head toward the sound, her eyes brimming with the room's stultifying blackness. Laura, was that you? Come on. Laura's whisper tickled the back of her ear and Alara's whole body tingled. She set her shoulders and leaned closer to the mirror. Blood mother. As Alara spat out the last summon, Laura threw on the light and the mirror filled with a thin face surrounded by a tangle of unkempt black hair. Alara screamed and rolled backwards, crashing into Laura. They banged against the wall as the bathroom rug slipped out from under them, sending them tumbling to the floor. Alara whipped her head, checking the reflection of every last seashell painting. Laura howled with laughter underneath her. Oh man, screaming at your own face is a new one, weirdo. What's all that? Laura's mother slur yelled from upstairs. Nothing, mom, Laura yelled back. Just scaring ourselves. Alara lay in her sleeping bag, breathing the stale air of Laura's house. The image she hated the most writhed in front of her. Edgar's face as the pain began contorted in confusion, too young to be afraid, only upset. Edgar's eyes scrunched up in a scream, the sticky pink smear of his mouth. Alara chewed a piece of dead skin off her lip and rolled it over her tongue, mashing it between her incisors before swallowing it. Somehow, Alara had even less of her parents' attention with dead Edgar than a live Edgar. Alara had to share her toys with a live Edgar, even when he broke them, and when a live Edgar tossed mud on them both, her mother yelled at Alara for letting him. A live Edgar took half the pile of Christmas presents, and Alara couldn't have a turkey leg for dinner and leftovers anymore because a live Edgar liked the tender dark meat, too. But somehow, dead Edgar was even worse, a black hole of her parents' attention, a void of anguish. Her mother didn't brush Alara's hair in the mornings. Her father handed her crumpled $5 bills and told her to get a sandwich from the deli on Main Street every day, 
even when everything for Alara's favorite favorite, a tuna sandwich with skinny sliced sweet garlic pickles, sat untouched in the cupboard. Alara knew things would be different with dead Edgar, but she didn't know it would be like this, and she slammed her eyes closed, hoping to push Edgar out. A rush of tinkling clicks filled the room and then surged like a hard rain. Alara rolled over, counted to ten, opened her eyes, and sat up. The thing outside the window looked like a woman, but longer, stretched, distended, topped by an egg-shaped head framed with stringy black hair. Hands clutched the sash, squat, square palms topped with elongated fingers and jagged, layered nails. It. She ducked her head and scratched a nail across the window, drawing on the glass, looping and swirling, scratching, etching. Daughter. Alara gasped. The head snapped up, trapping Alara in dilated pupils. The woman smiled, and Alara started to smile back, but the woman's mouth kept going, revealing long teeth, hooked and barbed. A second row of teeth descended from behind the first, straight and needle-sharp. The sash lock clicked open, and a thin nail wormed between the edge of the window and the sill, the space widening. More fingers curled past the ledge, spindly as spider legs, and Alara smelled sun-hot fur and the tang of congealed blood. I was worried you wouldn't come this time, Alara said. At Laura's wake, the adults petted and made a fuss over Alara, conducting silent adult conversations. A glance at the top of Alara's head. This girl is going to need therapy. Lemon sour, tight lips. Can you imagine? A whistle with no whistle. It has to be environmental. Maybe there aren't enough deer for the wolves. Raised eyebrows and tilted heads. We should move. Head turned toward Laura's mother. Arms crossed over ribs. Looks of heartrending concern. Maybe if she drank less, her kid wouldn't be able to sneak out of the house in the middle of the night. Alara sat calmly, ankles crossed, leaning into each caress. That was Jolie Tumajan's Favorite Favorite, as read by Kat Woodford. Kat is an ER nurse and educator in Northern Maryland, where she lives with her husband, stepson, Cat Stinky, and dog, Bark W. Griswold. She loves all things horror, and says the things she has read and watched are nothing compared to the horrors she has seen in real life. When she's not working in a hospital or voice acting, you can find Kat sailing with her family or riding motorcycles with her husband. Thank you, Kat. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Our second tale tonight comes from Erica Rupert. Erica Rupert is a member of the Horror Writers Association who lives in northern New Jersey with her husband and too many cats. She writes weird horror and dark fantasy, and her work has appeared in magazines including Unnerving, Laplight, and Nightmare, on podcasts including Podcastle, and in multiple anthologies. When she's not writing, she runs, bakes, and gardens with more enthusiasm than skill. Her novella, Sisters in Arms, was released by Trepidatio Publishing in July 2021. Listen with me, children of the night, to Erica Rupert's Alba, first published in Another Realm, April 2016. Alba, princess, only child of a dead wife. What hope for her? Docile, dreaming, her own wants leading away from her purpose. She knows desire and obedience cannot inhabit the same heart, not without consequence, but still she wants. Alba is a soft girl. The early loss of her mother compensated with toys and luxuries. She is her father's souvenir, her dead mother's mirror, tall and narrow in a stark stretch of black hair, an ivory pallor. But her father's new wife, Irina, is dusky, small, and ripe, as if to blur the memory of the other. Her body promises sons. Alba cannot compete with that in her father's affections. His memory of her mother is already washing away, but not Alba's. She looks in the mirror each morning and misses the woman she never knew. Irina has no time for daughters not her own, especially those that could be her sister. Alba becomes almost forgotten in her father's house, still coddled, still a pet, but now overshadowed by the new wife's lure. As a daughter, she can only be offered an alliance. She cannot be his heir. Alba watches her father's new wife obliquely and sees the script of her own fate as a royal daughter. She sees tension begin to pull at Irina's mouth as one month after another goes by in barren blood. Then Irina is at last pregnant, and Alba watches the way the ripe woman is treated in her father's house. Coddled, too, like a favorite bitch, until the day she miscarries, birthing a stillborn girl. The disappointment in the house makes the air almost too thick to breathe. Alba is not a stupid child. Her mother left her depth as well as surface, and Alba thinks long on Irina's circumstance. They are, after all, close in age. Alba tries to be warm toward her father's wife, to create a common ground out of sorrow. She is lonely too. Sit with me, mother, she says, laying a pillow on the side sill of the tower window that looks over the late summer gardens, but Irina rejects her in the face of other concerns. In Irina's country, in the wild north, the child that kills its mother in childbirth must die too, for it has shown itself greedy for life. Irina knows Alba's past and knows that the girl's greed is what keeps her own womb empty. She knows Alba is unnatural, and she knows what magic will end her. But such magic costs dear. It costs the days she longs to spend as her own. Those still are fewer days than what she will forfeit if she does not bear an heir.
Irina weighs her possibilities and decides. She casts her magic, listens to the old wisdom. She makes her plans. Forgive me for my sullenness. Walk with me in the forest, Irina asks, and the lonely girl agrees. Alba hopes this will be the thin seedling of amity between them, but her hope is ignorant and without roots. Irina has made the required sacrifices, that she should have Alba's heart to eat and let the wild beasts take the rest. Alba's days will be hers, an intimacy Alba could not imagine. Irina's possible children will be safe. But when they reach the place Irina has chosen and consecrated, Irina pauses. Her predator's instincts rouse. Her fingers tap the butt of the knife sheathed up her sleeve, knowing it is already too late to draw it. There are eyes among the trees that watch their every step, every breath. Eyes glinting like fractured mirrors when they catch the sun. Leaves tremble without a breeze to stir them. Shadows do not fit to the trees from which they spring. This is magic too, far different from what Irina wields. Irina cannot see the watchers, but she knows she will not leave the forest unmarked, in flesh or memory. If she keeps on, Alba, calm as milk, seems not to notice. What is there, girl? Alba looks sweetly at Irina, a smile on her lips. There is such comfort here for her. I know you know. Tell me, Irina demands. Alba closes her eyes, then scents the air. I do not know them, she says, yet they are no strangers. In the dim light, the shadows gradually move and take form, arms and legs straighten to reveal mannequin shapes, with bright black eyes in their dust-brown faces. Not animals, not men. They wear rags and leaves and skin, hold short knives and carry spears. They are prepared to hunt. Irina grabs Alba's wrist to hold her where she stands, although Alba makes no motion to run. Irina gestures with her free hand and whispers a single word toward the mannequins away. It has no effect. Sweat stands out on her face. Make them go. Irina hisses in Alba's ear. Tell them you don't need them. Thin rumors have long echoed that Alba's mother had been so protected that the charm was in her blood. Even Irina had heard them. She had hoped they were exaggerations. Alba stares at the creatures, wondering, unafraid. These creatures love her. She knows this does not know how, but their love is a thing to which she is entitled. They will not let her come to harm. She knows. It is all right, Alba says to the dusky creatures. We are friends. The mannequins seem to fade into the tangle of the forest. Only their sharp eyes still visible. Irina pulls on Alba's arm to steer them back the way they had come. She can read the warning. Now is the wrong time the wrong place. There will be another time when she is better prepared. Soon, Irina is pregnant again. The house fills with tense anticipation rather than joy. While this new child grows in his wife's belly, the king negotiates a match for his Alba. It is past time for it. She is well old enough to be useful, to heal an old breach in a once profitable alliance. Alba is told the name of her future husband, and told to prepare for him. She must be pleasing. She must be ripe. She must be worth her husband's father's risk in taking her. Alba says nothing to her father's command, although she thinks long on it. She sees how thin Irina has become despite her growing belly. How drawn and pale her face is. She watches Irina's fear. She pities her. She does not want this for herself. Irina knows that Alba watches her. She knows she will not bear a living child until Alba is gone. But Irina cannot raise a weapon against her. The inherited protection about Alba is too strong. But Irina can turn to another way, 
as old as the old magic and as dark as its wiles. She can disguise the knife. Irina uses her other skills to make an apple flawless, blushing red, and poisonous. It costs her much, but it will bring her much. Once Alba tastes it, once the poison stops her heart from beating and her blood lies still in its veins, the creatures will lose all sense of her. Her protections will fail, and Irina will have her heart to eat like some rare fruit and swallow it with all of Alba's days. Let us go into the forest again, Irina says to Alba. It is so hot in the gardens, and the trees make it cool. Yes, Alba says, her thoughts already on other concerns. Irina fears the forest, but there is no spot secret enough in her husband's house for such a purpose as hers. She veils her thoughts, hoping Alba's creatures will not see past them to her intentions. Irina leads them down a different path than last time, but the ending will come all the same. When Irina tires, they stop, and she draws from her pocket the beautiful fruit. She wipes a speck of lint away with shaking fingers and holds the apple out to the girl. We have walked so far, she says. You must be hungry. The trees around them own their shadows. It is quiet here and cool. Alba knows what she's being given. She has thought long on it, turned the prospects in her mind like a jewel. She sees the pain and starving need in Irina's face, thinly masked with false friendship. Alba weighs the possibilities contained in Irina's plot. She can choose a quick death here in the cool green forest or a slow one in service to her husband-to-be. Alba takes the red fruit, turns it in her hand. Irina watches her, avid. Alba meets her stare and lifts the apple to her opened mouth. She bites it, and her eyes grow wide as the morsel falls on the back of her tongue and shuts her throat. The juice of it trickles down, sweet, the taste of the apple following her into nothingness like a memory. Irina waits, her own breath held as Alba's stops. Her fingers crook into claws around the silver of the blade. She hopes she has hidden her purpose from the creatures, hopes she will have enough time. The forest is still as a grave. Irina bends over fallen Alba, loosens her blouse, bears her white breast for her harvest. She clears her thoughts to let the memorized chant flow free but the spell she whispers dies on her lips as Alba's protectors coalesce from the shadows. They come armed with knives and claws and teeth of their own. Irina knows her chance is gone and runs from them, unsated, hot hate in her mouth instead of a warm heart. One possible future is wasted. The mannequins do not care that Irina has escaped. They care only for their Alba. They lift her, a multitude of small hands, to bear her slender body away. Under the trees, with them, she is safe, even if she does not draw breath. They know she is not lost to them. Irina did not understand her potion's subtlety. The rare poison keeps Alba still, but not ended. Her eyes remain open, reflecting patterns of leaves and shards of sky. Her pale hand still curls around the apple. The creatures carry her deep into the forest to their home, where they have made a shrine for her in anticipation of this moment. They have carved a coffin of quartz as clear as glass, polished and shaped like the curve of arms to hold her. Fine loam covers the bottom, and moss and thickly scattered leaves, a soft bed for a sleeping princess. They knew she would need such shelter. They lay her in it like a babe into a cradle, tuck the bitten apple in with her, and close the case. Time goes on, days, seasons, at last a year. It is a year she does not live, a year her great gray eyes look into nothingness and watch it pass. She has become a traveler within her own glass coffin, always between time and more time. 
Her pale fingers bend around the red, red fruit, cradling it against her still heart. Her coffin's translucence is lost to dust and cobwebs, to a dappled pattern made of rain on the dust. Weeds crawl up around it. She is outside the limits of measure now and can extend her life indefinitely, tick by precious tick. She remains unpossessed, drowsing and almost aware. In the year Alba dreams, Irina loses two more pregnancies. The second is a son, born too early, who drew breath for an hour before he died. She grows desperate, knowing how close her own fate hangs over her. Her king's mood changes from one of expectation to one of demand. He grows older, his own time slipping away, his opportunity for an heir with it. Even his daughter is lost. Sometimes he strikes Irina, careless in his disappointment because she means so little to him. To escape him for brief hours, Irina walks alone in the forest. It is safe enough now that Alba is gone. She travels the path she knows. She wonders if her life is worth another apple for the king. One day, she pushes further into the trees, following the merest sketch of a path. She can feel the age of the mossy trunks around her, the weight of time misting in the air. She presses on through a grove of fir trees, sliding past their saggy branches into a dappled clearing. Irina stands for a moment in the sudden sunlight, letting it warm her skin. She has lost much of her color since she has become a wife. It is a few moments before Irina notices the model glass coffin beneath its covering of branches. She walks to it cautiously and brushes away the powdery dust. Inside, blurred as if by water, she can make out the still form of Alba. The girl is unchanged, uncorrupted. Irina draws in a startled breath. The protections on Alba have preserved her even from poison. Irina's mind is quick. She sees a chance she did not have before. She marks the path she took and plots for her own survival. My lord, Irina says one day after she had thought long on what to tell him. My lord, I have heard whispers of where Alba may be. He takes her bait. He has missed Alba, his only child. But she is also still part of his strategy. The discovered child is of far more use than those yet unborn. The king gathers his rowdy court and makes a party of the expedition. Irina, brittle in bright dress, leads the company into the forest by an indirect path, forcing them to rely on her direction. She will hold what power she can. At times, she glances over her shoulder at the loud pageants of lords and servants and the prince to whom Alba is still promised. Irina thinks him vulgar, but she is not his bride. The party laughs and jokes and sings around her, but Irina pays them little mind, leading them on, wary always of Alba's guardians. At last she stops, knowing the nobles are lost, and points to the end of their journey. There she is, she says, her voice low and resonant beneath the trees. The forest is lush around Alba's coffin, but still the glint of crystal scatters through the branches. The prince alone dismounts, and with the king's permission, tears away the reeds that have grown up around Alba where she rests. The prince rubs the surface of the casket clean with his yellow velvet sleeve and peers into Alba's wide open eyes. He cries out and jumps back, shaming himself before the company. The king laughs hard and comes up beside the young man, looking down at his lost daughter. Well, free her, man, he says, and beckons his party forward to help the prince lift the massive lid. Stone scrapes stone, and cool air spills over the side of the casket. It smells sweetly of apple. With nothing between them, the prince gazes down on Alba, appraising her. Then he bends close and touches her lightly, stroking her dark hair and running fingers over her parted lips. He slips his hand beneath her cool body and lifts her free of her tomb. As he raises her, the bit of apple falls from between her lips, 
burning the ground where it lands. Alba coughs in a spasm and draws breath again, and her open eyes once more see the world. The company falls back in superstitious caution. Irina watches the resurrection, fascinated and appalled. She has bought herself time. As Alba comes awake, she looks dazedly at the faces around her, until she looks up at her father's wife. Their eyes meet, their gazes hold. Alba sees clearly how tight Irina's face is drawn, and the fear there, the pallor. Alba knows she has been bartered again. Even as she allows the strange prince to lift her high, hold her up and carry her before him on his horse, Alba's heart balks. She does not want this. She will not bear this. But she is weak from her year away and tolerates his touch and his smell as the company sings out the miracle of her return and chatters emptily of the coming wedding. Alba does not desire the prince who will release her from one stasis into another. How could she? He is a stranger who loves not her, but what she brings. She marries him at her father's will to bind the kingdoms, to seal their fortunes. Alba leans her head back against this strange man and closes her eyes at last. Time flies now. Three months from her awakening is the length of her engagement. Three hours long into the wedding rite and three days full of the feasting. The guests grow fat and drunk in celebration. But Alba is bored by it all, her prince becoming a lout in fine clothing as he guzzles rich wine, and her father a bloated pig. Nothingness is more than what this court can offer. Alba glances at Irina, where she sits like a statue beside her reveling king, gray as dust and wasting away, pregnant again. Maybe this time she will bear a live son. Alba sits at table, as she should, and toys with her silver knife, crossing it with her spoon, slicing the grease still smeared on her plate. She is finished with looking at the rejoicing company. They do not matter to her. This is not what she wants. Her eyes, watching the glint of the blade, do not see whose hands place the bowl of fruit close before her. But she does see, nestled among grapes and figs and almonds, a single red apple with dew still on its skin. She glances quickly around to see who else has noticed, but they ignore her. She is not one of them. She is alone with the temptation in the sea of revelers. She takes the apple from the bowl, the apple so smooth and perfect it can only be a thing of artifice. It fits her hand. It has been there before. Turning it, she can see where she bit into it once, a year ago. The flesh is still perfectly white, uncorrupted. Her fingers burn against its rosy skin. Alba lifts it to her lips, smiles around it at her new husband when he leers at her, and once again sinks her small, sharp teeth into its flesh. The next breath Alba draws rattles in her throat, drawing the morsel of apple down to lodge behind her tongue, to bind her again to the space between moments, to take her out of the world. As she falls, she hears Irina cry out. She cannot tell the words, only the tone of despair. Then she is gone. Hands lift her, soft as wings, a shadow. She is moving, but only across distance. Time is done with her. She does not know it. Her protectors carry her gently back to the sheltering forest, to the glass coffin they kept for her, should she need its refuge again. They understand the workings of her world. They lay her in it, make sure the apple is still in her hands, brush her tangled black hair smooth again. They touch her, patting her softly, affectionately, with long fingers before they close the lid once more upon her. She slips from memory into myth. Years pass before she opens her eyes. She dreams, awake, a slow fever of motion and change, light and darkness, frost and hot sunlight. She has no memory of it. She herself is changeless. She becomes a legend, 
Alba, the lost girl. The lost tomb with a treasure within it. Rubies and onyx, ivory and pearl. She would laugh to hear the young men whisper about her over their mugs, plotting to prove their manhood by finding her and releasing her. She is something to be acted upon, a blank canvas, clear water. But one young man goes further than bragging. He searches beyond the rumors and bravado for the fragments of truth that straggle through the old church records and royal missives. Royal himself, another prince, he has the means and the time to follow each possibility into the forest, a quest that he hopes will win him a legend of his own. He does not truly expect to find her, not Alba. He expects barren bones. He expects some hollow reflection of the gilded tales. But with effort and a long portion of his youth, he finds the place where she lays and at last stands in the strangeness of it. The forest clearing is hushed and lonely, lost rather than abandoned. Vines twine thickly around the glass tomb, the grave so long unattended that the form inside is unseeable, her existence an act of faith. Like another prince before him, he pulls the heavy breath away, rubs at the filthy coffin to peer inside. There is a figure in there, shadowed and indistinct, still softly female. This prince runs his fingers along the edge of the casket, feeling for the junction between the body and the lid. He finds it. He digs a pry bar into the narrow slot and wedges the heavy lid up. When the seal is breached, the sweet breath escapes a fragrance of earth and dry grasses and ripe fruit. Straining, he pushes the lid aside, rocking the coffin, rocking the still figure within. The incorrupt apple once more rolls out of Alba's hands. The bite of it once more rolls off her tongue. Her throat opens again. She gasps and closes her eyes for the first time in ages, letting her memory refill. She has felt all this before. It is no surprise to her. But he steps back, overwhelmed, overawed. Alba rises without his help. Pale within a cloak of loose black hair and looks at him in slow, chill judgment. His fine clothes and signet betray his rank. He is a man like her father was, like her long-ago husband, rooted to the earth, consumed with status and rule. She does not want him. She raises one white hand and waves him away. The prince flees from her, convinced she is a vampire, demon, monster. He sought only to rob a grave and prove his own wit, not to resurrect a living myth. She is unnatural to still live. Her magic is not what was bargained for. Alba is glad for the rustling silence that fills in the prince's wake. She sits alone on the edge of the coffin as the day unspools, adjusting the sensation of passing hours. It does not matter to her that she is alone, unanchored. She breathes deeply, evenly, reclaiming her life. She must decide what it will be now. The falling sun gilts her, and finally she is able to slip back into the steam of time. She stands, solitary, surveying the quiet forest. She knew this place once. It was safe here. It is hard to walk, hard to begin to live again. The apple still lies in the coffin, in the cool hollow where her body had been. Alba moves a little stiffly, steps gingerly away from it, uncertain of this new course. It has been so very long. Among the tall trunks, she remembers more than she sees the path she must take. She follows the bare memory of a trail to a low, ruined house. She has never been inside of it, but she knows what she knows. Her mother left her this, if nothing else. The door is gone and much of the roof. The house has been uninhabited for many of the years she lay untouched in her coffin. Inside the crumbled house still are seven small husks, dry scraps of leather and bone, the relics of her protectors. They were faithful to her to the ends of their lives, but they could not live forever. 
not like she might. The thought of it is too much for her. She turns away from them, unable to alter their fate. Light streams into the house from many broken places, a lattice in the air. On the sagging mantle, a bright thing catches her eye. She lifts it into the light. It is a small statue of a young woman, all in white marble, save for the ruby heart, cupped in her carved hands, and the smoke quartz glint of her eyes. Her eyes are open. They knew she would come back. That was Erica Rupert's Alba, as read by Michelle Kane. Michelle is from the Kansas City metropolitan area. She has a dulcimer and a baudrin that she doesn't have time to play because she spends her time working in a cube farm and being a mom to her six-year-old son and their 11-year-old Labrador. And, of course, narrating stories when she has the chance. She can be found on Twitter at ShellDavis72. Thank you, Michelle. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we dabble in dark magics with more Tales to Terrify. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.